We're taking our Bibles. We're headed to Luke chapter 16, Revelation chapter 6. Those two passages will be mostly in Revelation chapter 6. As I was thinking of this passage, I was thinking of uh, visits that some of you have had, that we have had, where you visited a zoo and you see these animals and they're amazing. And they sometimes have them do different displays of their abilities, their talents. They have them, you know, do tricks or varieties. But then some of these zoos places, what they do is they set up like the one that we had, we had told you we had visited when we were visiting one of the kids out west, went to San Diego Zoo. And there they have the cheetahs run this one stretch just to show how fast they are, that they can get the hero, zero to 60 faster than any of us in this room. And they display those talents. Those zoos are really neat, you know, and they're really, they're really fun, but these animals aren't free. And so a lot of them, you hear about their abilities, you hear about their adaptability, you hear about how they have these different skill sets, but they're not doing those skill sets because they're chained. They don't reach their full potential because they're caged. Well, sometimes they're caged. We were in the, in the Arizona Zoo and we're walking, I think I told you about this, we're walking from area to area and they, they section off their areas by you walk through this gated area, go about 10 feet, and you open the next gate. Well, when we're doing that, all of a sudden Becky says, Dad, don't take a step. And it's like, why not? She says, there's a snake. We had just come out of the snake room. And so this snake just slithered right across the path. I don't know if it was a poisonous one or not. I was on Becky's back. She was trying to take care of it. But it was just one of those moments that you say, okay, I'm glad that those, those things are mostly caged up. And we reported it right away, and they, they thought it wasn't an escapee. But there in the zoo, those animals don't reach their full potential. They're kept. They're caged. In many ways, we are like that. Here on this earth, because of the curse, because of the sin, we don't reach our full potential mentally. We don't reach our full potential in, in skill sets in the sense of what we're going to do in service for the Lord. It's not going to happen until we get to heaven. When we get to heaven, we're going to have our fullest, grandest time of freedom and fulfillment and accomplishment that we've ever had in our lifetime. That's hard for us to understand. But the best is yet to come. We're not going to miss anything here because there is so much more for us without the binding of the curse upon us and upon our bodies and upon society as a whole. It is just going to be a phenomenal time. But the question that comes up is about heaven. We've already talked about that. We've spent some time, two different messages, trying to just breeze through it quickly and give you an idea. Here's where the questions often come up about us. What exactly will we be like? What about our loved ones who are deceased? What do they know? Do they know what we're doing? Do they understand? Do they do what, what exactly? What kind of activities or involvement that they're in? Well, let's look at two passages. Okay, just to get an insight. Now, we don't have all the details, but we do have some insight. One passage that Jesus is going to be telling about what happens to dead people and deceased people is Luke 16. I am convinced in my heart that this is not a parable, but this is an actual account, and they take that based upon the idea that in the parables that uh, they, they, they often say a certain man or an individual or this or that. This one has names. This one Jesus identifies actual living people. And he says there was a certain rich man, I'm in Luke 16 verse 19, a certain rich man clothed in purple and in fine linen fared sumptuously every day and there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was at his gate full of sores. And desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked the man's wounds. It came to pass, the beggar died and was carried by the angels. Now we're going to get some insight into what is the paradise prior to Jesus moving it and transferring it to heaven. We're going to get some details about what 
people are like in the spirit realm after they die. Okay, that's not the goal of this passage. That wasn't the original intent, but it gives us this insight. It came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. He cried, said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. Interesting. In the spirit realm, their description of their, their spirit body. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted. You are tormented. Interesting what they remember. Beside all this, betwixt us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Interesting, his memory of his life on earth. For I have five brothers, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. He said, No, 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 Father Abraham. If one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Let's go to Revelation. Revelation 6. And again, this text is not written with the sole purpose of giving us insight into the spirit realm. It has another purpose. But we're looking from that perspective of what about the spirit realm. Revelation chapter 6. In this text, he is talking about souls under the altar. Now, we're not talking like in some churches. Some churches you can visit and the bodies of deceased people are in the altars. You can go to Philadelphia and you can say, see Bishop Newman's body there still on the right side, that it's there, it's encased. We're not talking that type of, you know, keeping the bodies entombed. We're talking rather about the spirits of individuals who are in heaven and talking to Jesus Christ who are at that place where the altar is there, they're, they're below it. They're like below the pulpit area. They're in this area in a worshipful mode. We read this in verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. They cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season, until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. Just that glimpse of an insight. You say, well, wait a minute, that's tribulation. It is. It is individuals who died during the tribulation period. But those individuals who die at that period, in that period, still go to the heaven that we go to when we leave this body. They are in the spirit. They have yet to be resurrected. And they are not going to be, uh, they're going to be in that heaven until Jesus transfers that heaven down to this earth, his capital in the millennial kingdom. So there's a commonality we have with these individuals. Spirits in heaven, okay? Individuals who are living in a time period that they're going to be involved with the, the current heaven that we would be involved in, and they have yet not received their resurrection bodies. So if we die or your loved ones have died, we're going to have some similarities to these individuals. Now at the time that this happens, when this is uh, pointed out in Revelation 6, by that time we will have been resurrected, given our resurrected bodies. There's going to be some differences that will happen because when we enter by this time, 
Okay? It's going to give us, uh, we're going to have the resurrection body. It'll be post-rapture. But those people would be like us now. When we die, they go to heaven in a spirit. They have yet to wait for the resurrection body. It won't happen until the end of that time. So there's commonalities. Current heaven and without resurrection bodies. What happened to them? What were they like? That gives us an indication what we are like. So blending these two together, here's what we have. We have several statements, many statements to make brief statements. Number one, they're alive and awake. They are alive and awake. This idea that people die and they go into a hibernation stage, that they just, they don't know what's going on, that's not true. There isn't such a thing in Scripture as soul sleep. When we die, we remain awake, we remain alive. Number two, number two, they're still human. They all of a sudden didn't change into angels. They didn't transfer into some other type of being. They don't become a god and start operating in their own little realm or their own world like some of the cultists teach. These are human spirits. They remain human. They're alive. They're awake. Number three, number three, they, they still have human qualities and abilities in the sense that they are thinking. They are asking questions. They are rationalizing. In heaven, there's going to be thinking. There's going to be that process. There's going to be, we'll get to it in a minute, there's going to be some learning. They're asking these questions and they display great emotion. When they say, oh Lord, how long? In fact, the word that is used when it says here in verse 10, they cried with a loud voice. It is a very dramatic word in the original language. They are calling calling out loudly. They are moved emotionally when they are crying out and usually it has the sense that it is something with a grieving, with a sorrowing aspect that we'll get to in a minute. That they are very emotional and so peoples in heaven with their spirit, without their bodies, they still act like humans act. Thinking, emotions, things of that sort. They still have their personal identities. They are still who they were. The people who had been martyred for the cause. Every single one of them. They remained their own person they didn't become some part of some big gooey substance. They are individuals with personal identity. If we go all the way back to Luke 16, those people with their personal identity, it's still Lazarus, it's still Abraham, and they were recognizable as such. And so we can look at other passages as well, give us the same thing. When Moses and Elijah are standing there with the Lord at the Mount of Transfiguration, they were recognized as Moses and as Elijah. They were two distinct individuals who still had whatever whatever features, whatever characteristics that were unique to Moses and were unique to Elijah. One with a body that was already a heavenly body physically and one that was still in the spirit realm, the spirit body. And so individuals who die, they are still going to be you. You are going to be in heaven as you, still an individual, still a human being, and it's going to be you. With your personality, with your traits, with your looks, that's what we get and enjoy in heaven. Well, wait a minute. Some of you say, I want a whole body makeover. Okay. It'll be improved, I'm sure, to some degree. I hope in my case, a lot of degree. But there's still the personal uh, uh, appearances. In fact, I find it very interesting, and I paused at that passage, that it says, take the tip of his finger. He doesn't have a resurrected body yet, but he has fingers. The spirit has fingers. It has, t it has a tongue. He said, dip the your, your finger in the water to cool just one drop on my tongue. They see, they talk, they have mouths. They are individuals who still look like us. We are spirits with bodies, not bodies with spirits primarily. And so we still maintain our features and our distinctions and our appendages are still there. They're able to communicate. 
They are able to talk. They are able to, to and, and by the way, the speech appears to be done with the mouth. It's not this mind meld transfer, you know, that they're doing that sci-fi idea, but they're talking with others. They're crying out. There's voices. It's something audible when he talks about the communication in heaven. There is loud noises. We we'll, we'll can talk and look in Revelation 5, Revelation 19, when the sing, saints are singing and there's orchestration to it. It's, it's, it's there. It's loud. It's, it's moving. And so we have them talking, communicating, and they're communicating directly to God. They're saying, God, okay, we have a question about what you're doing, God. Which leads us to number seven. They're able to learn. These individuals are able to learn. They're asking questions, which says to me right away, when we get to heaven, we won't know everything. We're not going to be like God. Okay, when we get there, we say, oh, wait, you, Pastor, you mentioned frequently that we're going to be studying. We're going to be learning. Aren't we going to have perfect bodies? Therefore, we will know everything. No, we will not know everything. Thing. That's like saying Adam, without any kind of sin, he knew absolutely everything. He knew what God gave him to know. Okay? He still had a learning curve to go through. He, in that new world, in the new creation, had to get some training, some understanding. We're going to be in a new world, in a new creation. There's going to be learning. There's going to be, the, when we talk about exploration, it's going to be probably different than what we have now in the cosmos. So there's going to be a learning time. There's going to be uh, learning forever. There's going to be this aspect that you and I will be curious. That now, some of us who had children that we called one of our kids Curious George, Okay, it was a curiosity that wasn't good. It was a curiosity that was getting into trouble all the time, into things that they, they shouldn't have been. I don't know if you had one like that, but we had one that just like, stay out of the cupboard, stay out of the oven, stay out of the washing machine. Well, let them go in. Okay, and maybe it'll, it'll cure them. You know, so the, the curiosity is going to be there. But it won't be one that's going to be damaging or dangerous in that regard. But we're going to be learning. And we won't know everything when we get there. We'll have to learn things. So that's a, an aspect of heaven. The, the, uh, we don't know everything, number eight. We aren't going to be a deity. Okay? And, and that's something that I'm, that I'm wanting to get across to you is that there's a lot of cults and a lot of groups that get out there and they say, you become like a god or you become divine. No, we don't. We, are not, we do not become omniscient or omnipotent, omnipresent. Those are, those are divine qualities. We remain and retain our human aspect even in, with resurrected bodies. So we're learning. Uh, we won't know everything. Number nine, we pray. One of the aspects is there's prayer. Now, these people are saying in a prayer language, they're talking to God, they're asking God a question. God, what about this? That, if, if that's prayer, seeking wisdom, seeking advice, seeking God to do something, which they're asking him to do. God, please, how long? Take, in the essence, of when they're saying, how long until you take vengeance for what, what has happened to us, they're asking for him to act. They're asking him to do something. And so there's that communication, there's that prayer aspect, which we will be involved in to a degree in heaven. Number 10, there's a purity. There's a purity displayed by the white robes that were given unto them. That these individuals have a display in the sense that in an outward display, it's the right garments to get into the wedding feast, Matthew 22. You have to have the right garments. They have the white garments. They're right, the right ones. We will have some type of purity that's going to be on display, but it doesn't come from us. 
Okay? It's the purity of Jesus Christ that he shares with us. As I mentioned this in closing this morning, I didn't state it, but I've told you this before, that in Isaiah it talks about the, as the groom shares his robes with his wife, so will the Messiah share his righteousness with us. I said this morning that in the wedding that the king, I'm sorry, that the groom was dressed like a king. Part of his parenting ceremony when they were at the house, I should say at the parents' house, part of the ceremony is he would take off his robe that, that portrayed him as a king. He would put it on his wife, on her shoulders, his new bride, so that she'd be covered with his garments to show possession, provision, character, show that she and he are now one. Christ would put his robes of righteousness upon us that we then have this purity in heaven which we haven't experienced here on this earth. Number 11, they wear clothing. Have you ever wondered about certain things like, ooh, in your dreams. We talked about them this morning. Several of you shared with me at the door. You have weird dreams, okay? And I won't share the dreams you shared with me. Don't panic right now. Okay, but so we have those things. Well, some of you have those weird dreams where, ooh, you get out in public and you, there's nothing. You know, as far as clothing, we we were we were this. You guys would never have thought this, but when we were baby Christians, just saved, my family didn't know when the pastor would talk about baptism and call it a big tub. You know, get dunked in the tub, get dunked in the tub. We thought this is a public baptism, and they're calling it a tub. I don't know about your family. We don't wear stuff in the tub. We go in our birthday suit. So we were wondering, what in the world do they wear? And he said, well, are you guys ready to get baptized? Uh-uh. <laughs> we weren't. I'm serious. We weren't going to get baptized until we want to see one happen. For my family, okay, we wanted to see, do they wear garments of some sort? So we sat in the balcony so we could make sure we could see exactly what there was going on because we didn't want, we didn't, you know, it wasn't that we were trying, now, never mind. Uh, <laughs> But we were just, we just didn't know. It was that like, oh, wow, this could be an embarrassing thing. Well, in heaven, there's some type of clothing. I don't understand that. If the, it's part of the curse and why there's clothing, I don't know. You can debate that, to discuss that with God. But indication here is there's some type of clothing. They experience comfort and bless. Bless the words that he uses here in verse 10 or 11. And when he makes a comment, he says that they should rest yet for a little season. It's the idea of continue to rest. You've had some rest, but now you can continue yet some more. You're going to have some comfort here, and they've experienced some comfort. They're concerned, as we'll see, they're crying out, but they've, they've had some rest up to this point. Lazarus, he had that comfort that is going on. We've talked about the heaven, that is one of the characteristics. Comfort, rest, peace doesn't mean boring. It doesn't mean no activity. There's activity, but it's comfort. It is also peaceful. It is not the stress that you have now. There is going to be that rest factor. Let's go a little bit further. They experience time and space like we do. When people go to heaven, it isn't walking into this dimension where there is no time and there is no space. That's not true. They ask him, Lord, how long? They are thinking in a time frame. They are operating in a time frame. His response rests for a little season. He operates in communicating with them in a time frame. In Luke, he's talking about space. That you are in this, we're talking the rich man is in hell, and he too has a full spirit body with fingers, tongues, lips, communication, feeling. And by the way, his spirit body has full sensation. It has full nerve endings that help him to experience pain and agony and torment. So he's experiencing that, and he's told, you're in a space. 
You're in a place. You can't cross over. So this idea that in the spirit realm there is total, total access anywhere and just think and you're there, that's not true. They in the spirit realm and in heaven in particular there's a time and a space element that's still involved. Now we know we enter into an eternity but the heaven that we're talking about we end, there is still an operation of time, an understanding of time, an understanding of space and of confines and limitations to a great degree. Let's go a little bit further. Uh, those who are in heaven, they experience strong ties with others in heaven. He's talking in this passage and he's going to make comment about there's the fellow servants that are still on earth, there's their brethren, and there's, the, there's this tie that they are having with the Lord, but also with other believers, some who aren't there yet. And so we know in Luke, or in John, where he says, you can be with me, all of you can be with me, there's a strong tie there. We know that, that Abraham and Lazarus, they had a strong tie. There was, there was no fear of a Father Abraham, if you would. There was, there was a closeness that they're having. So here in this, in this uh, um, going into the heavenly realm, we're talking there's bonding. There is communication. There is fellowship. There is a strong tie that is felt. But let's add to that. They also remember their lives on earth. When we go to heaven, we don't all of a sudden have this moment that all of a sudden everything is blocked out. These individuals knew exactly what happened to them. When he says, because you were martyred, because you are here, well, why don't you take, a, take a vengeance upon those who have martyred us? They know what happened to them. They remember their death experience. They remember going through that. They remembered the bad things, as we would call them, here on earth. Well, in, uh, in Luke 16, there is a remembrance of Lazarus knowing what he experienced. Remember in your lifetime, you had all the riches, but Lazarus, he had nothing. And so it doesn't mean that when we get to heaven, our memories are totally eradicated. Not at this point. Now, does that happen in the future? Sometime in the distant future when we enter into the uh, eternal heaven, one of the things that happens before we enter the eternal heaven, it is that, that is the passage and that is the time when he says he will wipe away all tears. Now what happens with that, I don't know. But, uh, but to this point where we're at, where we're understanding if this heaven at this moment where we would go, we still have recall. We have memory. In fact, we remember family ties it seems to be. The rich man in hell knew his family, knew his family members. He didn't lose contact with them or concern for them. He still remembers them. Do people in heaven who go to heaven, do your loved ones know about you? It sure seems that way. It sure seems that they would know that they were at one time where they got saved, what they did for the Lord, and how they served the Lord. And by the way, when we get raptured, we're going to have to give an account for our service for the Lord. So there is no indication in Scripture that our memories are eradicated, that we don't have contact. Uh, any idea of our lives in the past, it seems that that goes with us. And it seems that we have recall of, of earthly relations and contacts that we had with people. Now are they going to be extended and be that same type of thing that Deb and I are going to, she is going to have to live with me for all eternity. No, she is going to have a heavenly bliss. Okay? In that sense that where he talks about that we are not given as the angels given in marriage and marriage, it, we're not going to be doing what 
what we experience here on this earth. And by the way, those of you who have not been in my Sunday school class, it might be just behoove you to just hear a little bit of data like this, that in Bible days, even amongst the Jewish scholars that were writing in Bible days, when Jesus is dealing with that one passage that talks about whose wife will this, will this woman be who married the seven brothers, part of the Jewish thinking, I'm sorry, yeah, part of the Jewish thinking, the Sadducees who asked that, they asked it because they didn't believe in a resurrection, so they're trying to make Jesus look look foolish because he has already talked about a resurrection. They thought the resurrection was, was just you know, bah humbug. And so they bring this up and they use from their old legends and folklore a story about a woman who had been married multiple times to a family. As if you, and you were in my Sunday school class, you heard this, that the, by the time of the New Testament era they had written, and there was many different booklets out and writings out that if a woman who has married multiple times and they died, usually after three she shouldn't be married again. And they, they put prohibitions on it. Reason being is if you remember in Bible days they think that everything bad, everything like, like death or disease came because of some personal sin. This woman who's killed off seven men, something's wrong with her. And so they concluded, remember in John, John chapter 9, who hath sinned, this blind man, this man or his parents? So if this woman in their legends has married six different men because each one of the brothers died, the problem is with, not the brothers, it's with her. And so they had a standard that they said, okay, three times and she's done. Okay, that's it for the safety of the rest of the family and everybody else. They didn't marry. And the Sadducees, so they bah humbug that. They said, see how foolish all this is. And they, they uh, the Jews, even some of those in the Pharisaical realm and some of those in, that were writing about future in heaven, they gave the aspect that in heaven what we will do is experience full, um, full benefit, full, full expression of all of our earthly desires, eating, drinking, sleeping, and sex. And so they had a concept, some of that, that um, poor Jewish concept of what, he, what the kingdom would be like included the idea of perpetual satisfaction of, of earthly desires. It sounds something like the Muslim world, doesn't it? Okay, and so the Jews had that. And so when Jesus is expressing to them, we're going to be like the angels. He is combating and he's contradicting popular belief at that time. And he's saying, no, no, when we get to heaven, we're going to be on a different level. We won't have base desires anymore. They will be elevated. And then some of the desires that would probably change is going to be the sexual desire. It's going to be removed. And so that doesn't mean that Deb and I may not know each other, but we won't have that intimacy and that type of ongoing relationship that we would have in this life. And so there's going to be some changes to that, that but that doesn't mean like that story I told you last week that the teacher when she was, uh, that little girl, that, that pastor's wife who has a little girl was told by her teacher, when you get to heaven you won't remember any of your family members. You won't remember who they are. That, that's, there's no basis for that in scripture. We don't have a lot of detail but what we get is we remember things from planet earth. We remember family members from planet earth. Let's keep on going. Number 17. They are aware of what's going on here on earth to a degree. How do I know that? How long, O oh Lord? They know in Revelation 6, they know at that time that judgment has not been carried out yet. How long, O oh Lord, until you, you avenge our blood? So they know it's not taken place yet. That those who martyred them are still in control. The time of the Gentiles are still operating. In fact, if we go to Revelation 19, let me give you another passage about people in heaven. Watch what their response is towards the end 
of the tribulation period. In Revelation 19, these are the spirits in heaven um, of the Old Testament saints. We will be there as well in our glorified bodies. But look at verse 1. After these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven, and here's our song. Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord God. For true and righteous are his judgments, for he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth. Watch. In heaven we're aware of the judgment that's taking place during the tribulation. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Alleluia, and her smoke rose up forever and ever, and the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you that fear him, both great and small. I had heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the voice of many waters. It's not telepathy. There is audible noise and, and, and uh, happenings, voices and all. And as the voice of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The indication is that those in heaven are either being told or they know somehow by, by being able to see, being able to relate, somehow there's knowledge of what's going on on earth. So could our loved ones know what's happening? Well, let's back up a little bit. There's the time when Jesus is meeting with Moses and Elijah. They're there. It's interesting that they are discussing with Jesus, though they've been in heaven, they are discussing with Jesus the things which should be accomplished. They know what's not been done yet. They know that he hasn't fulfilled all of his messianic role yet, and they're discussing it with him. Is he informing them from, from a, a point of ignorance, or are they understanding their prophecies and saying, how is this being fulfilled and discussing? Let me give you another illustration. It says that there is joy in heaven when somebody gets saved. Jesus talked about this at Luke 15. We mentioned it this morning. The rejoicing must, has to indicate that there's an awareness of people getting saved. How they know that, I'm not sure. Is it God telling them, angels telling them, or is there a monitor back to earth? I don't know. I'll give you a really interesting account. <clears throat> Back in 1 Samuel 28, this is the time when Samuel is in that paradise realm and the witch of Endor conjures him up. I don't think that she could normally do that. I think she is shocked that it happened, but this is an allowance by God to communicate some form of revelation. Samuel said, wherefore then do you ask me? And Saul is sitting there who, is, who has hired this witch, and you all understand the story. Up to this point, Saul has been killing off the witches and people who have been doing the conjuring. But he knows there's one there, and he's kind of held her in reserve, and when he's really, really desperate, he goes to this woman. And he says, okay, conjure me up the spirit of Samuel. And so Samuel comes up, and here's Samuel's words. Where Wherefore then do you ask me, seeing the Lord has departed from you, for the Lord has rent the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David? That's no surprise. Samuel said those things to Saul when he was alive, before he died. He had anointed David. So that's nothing new. What is interesting is his next statement. In his next statement he says, And the Lord will deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines. He is referring to a current battle that's the night before the battle with the Philistines that Samuel would not have known about. This battle took place or is happening after Samuel has been in the grave. And so Samuel has some awareness of something that is going on on planet earth and some of the difficulty that Saul is engaged in. So what does that mean about the spirit realm? I can't tell you all because I don't know all, but there's indication that they have an awareness of what is happening here on planet earth. They seem to have an ongoing concern for the earth dwellers as they desire action to be taken. 
They're saying, in this case, in, in Revelation 6, take revenge, take revenge, take revenge. Now, don't think it in a negative sense, that they are there and they are vindictive individuals, and they're saying, God, wipe them out. Come on, God, come on, God, destroy those, those opponents. You know how we get with sports? Okay, we get with our, anybody who beat our team soundly at some time, we want them wiped out. That's why me, in my, in my heart, I cheer for anybody who's playing against Dallas because Dallas whooped the Vikings so often in the past. Okay, and I understand that we, and some of us, you know, get back, get back, get back. Well, that's not the attitude that's, that these saints have, that they want God to just wipe them out. It's more of the attitude that is, God, you said you were going to stop the evil. You said you were going to judge the Antichrist, the uh, persecution. You said you were, gonna, you were going to, you know, um, protect your church. How long, God, how are your, your elect, the Israel, uh, excuse me, you're going to protect them. How long, O oh Lord, how long until you put an end to all the evil that's taking place? And by the way, if we are in heaven, and we are aware of what's going on planet earth. Our book of revelations does not paint how horrible that's going to be. It gives us an insight, but you cannot paint how horrible the tribulation be. Do you think, don't you think that if we were aware of all that's going on, the tragedy, that we would be moved to say, please Lord, stop it now. Put planet earth out of its misery. Stop it, please. Well, these saints are doing that. They want justice. They want it stopped. And so there's a concern for what's happening back here on planet Earth that there would be an end to evil. There would be, uh, be a stopping of all that's going on. Let me take it a step further, okay? Um, the rich man in hell, he has full remembrance of family. His concern for those who are back there is what? Send somebody to tell my five brethren so that they what? they don't end up where I'm at. You know, some of the most avid evangelists are people in hell right now. That they understand, they fully sense it. They don't want people. You know, we, we, we joke, we say this, you know, some of us when we were lost, we'd say, I don't care if I go to hell, I'll be with all my buddies and we'll have a six-pack for a perpetual drunken party, you know, a kegger forever and ever. It's not that way at all. Hell is not that way. And the people there don't want others to come. Well, if the people in hell don't want loved ones to be there, what do you think the people in heaven want? They want the loved ones to get there, okay? And so they want righteousness. They appear to experience some limited sorrow. The reason I say that is because in this text, Okay, in this text, it's how long, O oh Lord, and the emotions there with the crying with a loud voice is not one of glee and of delight, but it is of concern, it is of, of I don't know what word to use here, uh, apprehension about what is happening and the tragedies that are taking place with the death and the dying and the, so many of, the, of the, the believers being persecuted. So it's not the, we, we understand that in heaven the predominant expression is joy. We understand that. But does that eliminate any other type of, uh, of emotion like sorrow for what's there? And by the way, when we are in heaven, we who are of the church, could we experience any type of sorrow? In fact, the, the, the epistles indicate that there will be some who will feel suffering loss for not serving the Lord. It says that some will be ashamed for not serving and not getting the crowns that could have been theirs. So is there a sense of emotion that, that it's like, oh, 
a sense of the emotion of regret. That's there. It's in Scriptures that that happens to the believers as well. So we have this predominant joy, but yet some who are saved yet so as by fire, their fulfilled joy, there's going to be a little bit of a twinge there that if only, if only. How long that lasts? I don't know. Okay, does that emotion become the predominant emotion? Doesn't seem that way. But are those some of those feelings there? Yeah. Number 20, they fully recognize God for who He is. The word that they use here in this passage is an interesting word. It's not the typical Adonai that shows up. It is, how long, O despotes? It's the word for that one who is in absolute, positively in control, the despot. And not in an evil way, but he is the one who is absolutely in charge. He is holy. He is true. They understand God better than any time. They are not taking control of heaven. The, uh, one of the cultists teaches that when we get into heaven, when we get into this realm, we are going to have total charge. We will be in, in charge of our own heaven and own earth. That's not true. God is going to retain his, his um, ownership. He's going to uh, uh, retain his um, control of everything, all the things that are done in heaven or on earth as they desire. God is going to be going to be in charge. And the people in heaven will recognize that. They will not usurp. However, let's add this like we did this morning. Is there going to come a time in heaven's, in heaven's experience that all of a sudden in the kingdom heaven that some will want to usurp God's control at the end? Remember at the end? The rebellion that Satan will generate amongst those who are born during that thousand-year kingdom, that he will get many of them, they will try to rebel. But until that time, even in the kingdom, it talks about how he will rule with a rod of iron. Okay, and so God is in total control during this time and uh, even in the future heavens. They enjoy God's focus and favor. God's talking with them. God communicates with them. God knows their past. There was an experience that my family had that some of you had in the spiritual realm. When we got saved, we got saved in 73 and we got born again and we were growing in the Lord. And the pastor of the church is really, really dear to our family. The one who we got saved under and got trained in the Word of God. And my, I was called to the ministry under his. My brother was called to the ministry under his ministry. And so we've had a, a real tie with this pastor all the years. But after several years of being in that church, he left. He went to another ministry. And after he left, they brought in a new pastor and uh, he wasn't a good pastor. Uh, anyway, but they brought him in. But we, even despite his lousy job that he did, we, there was a sense of a loss. He didn't know us. He didn't know our background, didn't know our experience. And so that's always stayed in my mind that there is some value to having a long-term ministry with people. They understand. They know what you've been through. They know your battles. They know your ups, your downs. They know what your kids went through or what your parents went through. And so there's some benefit. God knows us. God knows what his saints have gone through. And so he's comforting them and he's talking about what they've experienced in the past. He's talking about them, what they're experiencing in the future, and he gives them real, real communication. There's a passage that comes in my mind that goes right with this. It's in a couple of chapters before this. Revelation 2, that gives an indication of God's comfort, God's care, God's really focus upon his children. Chapter 2, verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. To him that overcomes... Now watch what he says. To him that overcomes will I give to eat of the hidden manna, will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written which no man knows, saving he that receives it. That's an interesting phrase. What it's highlighting is God's care, God's protection, God's concern about each and every one, especially those who would overcome and follow. What's interesting is break it down. He's going to give them 
this, this manna. Well, we understand what the manna is. It's heaven's bread. We understand that that is an indication of Jesus even suffer, supping with somebody, that close fellowship as he developed in John 6. As he says, I'll come and I'll be at the door. Behold, you, you open it. I will come in and sup with you. So there's going to be that eternal, that ongoing, real close communion with Jesus Christ. When he talks about the white stone, we're not fully convinced. Or I'm not fully convinced, I should say. There's different options by different scholars that point out historically where the white stones came from. Urim and Thummim. They had the different stones at times to indicate the will of God. You had in the Roman society that you had, uh, which is dealing with some of these cities that, that were now in the Roman world was overseeing, that in their Olympics, in their, in their competitions that Rome would sponsor, they would give white stones. They were diamonds, but they were called white stones. To those who were the victors, is that what he means? I'm going to give them gems. I'm going to give them some type of valuable reward. Um, or is it this? Is it the white stone that sometimes is used, guilty or not guilty, in some of those different societies? Well, I'm, I'm not sure which one it is, okay? And I can't definitively say, thus saith the Lord, that's one it is. But it seems to me that the manna, the white stone, are indicative of God's favor, especially when it goes with number three, where he says, I'm going to give them a new name written on this stone that nobody knows but the what I'm giving them and they who receive it. Interesting, the new names... It could be reference to, I'm going to see them for their full potential. Like Jacob and Israel, same person, but they were given, he was given different names to indicate different position, different potential. Simon Peter, same thing. Is that what he means? Is he's going to give me a name that indicates all that I can be. Is it a new name in the sense that when you get married, there's a new name. When somebody became a king, they took a new name at times. When they took an office, they, they had a new name that would signify a name that would be very distinguished, very honorable. Is that what he means? Is it the idea of a pet name? That I have pet names for my kids. Um, I have pet names for the grandkids. Um, the only ones that we don't have pet names for is the, the two of us. Okay, But everybody else around us, we give them these pet names that we use, and we try not to use them publicly, Try not to. Okay, and say them publicly, and but they they indicate a real a real closeness. Which one it is, I don't know. But I do know this: that the, putting the whole text together, that there is some real care and favor expressed by God towards His children, towards His children who are in heaven, towards His children who are here on earth. That same love, that same care that He shows for them, doesn't He do for us? where he allows them to communicate, where he allows them to talk, where he says, I know your situations. In fact, look at Revelation 6. Look at where he talks about your fellow servants, he says, that have yet to die. He says that in this passage, he said, there are many still on earth, your brethren and fellow servants, you just wait a little season, that those that should be killed, he knows about them. He knows what's happening. He knows who's suffering, who's being persecuted. Voice of Martyrs says that some 450 believers are killed every day here on earth. God knows every one of their situations. God cares for every one of them. And so that's, there's an awareness of that. Does he offer us a white stone of forgiveness at this point? Oh, absolutely. Does he offer us rewards for, as an incentive? Absolutely. Does he offer us a close communion with him? Oh, absolutely. That he calls us not servants, but friends as he talks about in John 15. Does he hear us now? Does he give us peace now? Hey, does our God prepare a heaven for us that's going to be wonderful? The answer is yes. 
And so he cares. He, he's, got, he's got this great compassion for you and I, and let's add to it. He's already caring in a more personable, one-on-one -on -one sense than what we experience here on this earth where they can see it, where they can, they can watch it in operation, even greater than what we know here on earth. Your loved ones are with him and experiencing his interaction, his care, his comfort, even further than what we see it here on earth in the sense of knowing what he's doing and how he's operating. It's a, it's a phenomenal thought that our God really cares that He loves us, that He cares for us. As we sung about and as we heard about, we have no reason to fear. We've got this future home in heaven. It is glorious. Listen, folks, the bottom line is this. We started off talking about that part of God's creation is confined. And it is proper that animals are under the, the rule and the control of men. I have no, no, no issues with that, that we are supposed to be stewards over them and take care of them. I understand all that. But even the animals in creation are suffering from groaning under sin. And one day that's going to be broken. You and I are groaning under it even more. We are caged by Satan. We are, we are facing some of his onslaught day in and day out. One of the things that he causes great fear in is the fear of death that we'll talk about over the next two weeks. That he uses it in a form of bondage over people, according to Hebrews, when he talks about the fear of death that often afflicts people. We have these battles. We have these struggles. But there's a day where it's going to be done where we will be uncaged, we will be unfettered, we will not have struggles with our own selves or with society around us. It's going to be a glorious, 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 glorious time. But the question is, are you going to be there? Are you sure you're going to be there? Here you sit, you've been through camps, you've been through Bible studies, you've been through all kinds of ministries and Sunday schools, you've been in this church maybe weeks, maybe months, maybe decades already. Do you know for sure? Are you convinced in your heart? Or is there doubt? I don't know. I'm not sure. You've got to settle this. You've got to be sure. And you can be sure. You don't want to miss out on something like heaven. You need to make sure you're born again.